Come and rest. To all who are weak, come and find strength. To all who are discouraged, come and find encouragement. And to all who sin, come and find mercy in the arms of a willing Savior. Good morning. I'm Jamie, one of the pastors here. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Luke, chapter 20. We'll be picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. As you know, we work our way through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. We find ourselves in Luke, chapter 20, this morning, beginning at verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the pew in front of you. And you'll find the passage we'll be reading today on page 879, page 879. The chapter numbers are the big numbers. The verse numbers are the little numbers. We'll be reading right under that section that says the parable of the wicked tenants. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. I'll read the whole passage and then ask for the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the Bible. And then we'll work through this passage together. In total, it's probably going to be around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray. Father, we submit ourselves to you and to this, your holy word. These are the words of eternal life. May they be written upon our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. For the glory of Jesus Christ, God the Son. Amen. God is all about God, and he wrote a book all about it. 
The 66 books which contain, which are contained in the Holy Scriptures are really one story from beginning to end. The Bible tells the story of God's glory in saving His people through judgment. It's really the story of all stories. It's the OG story. All storylines follow an arc. They start with a setting and there's some kind of exposition about the world and then there's some inciting incident with obstacles, some action that rises with crises and victories along the way. Eventually, the story reaches the point where everything changes, unravels, and falls into the greatest crisis of all, which then leads to the great victory and the happily ever after. This is the storyline arc. And the Bible has its own storyline arc, and all of the stories that we love really mimic the Bible's storyline arc. If you've been following along with us in our, our church's Bible's one-year reading plan, which I hope you are, you have been reading about this rising action in the storyline of the Bible. God had chosen a people for himself. He had promised to settle them in the land where they would be his people, and they were to show the nations of the world of the glory of Yahweh. This nation of people, this people that we know as Israel, they, they, were, to, they were a vineyard, so to speak, and God was the vine dresser, the owner of the vineyard. And he cultivated the vineyard. He planted the vineyard. And the crisis in the Old Testament comes when the vineyard that God had planted begins to produce wild grapes. And the prophet Isaiah wrote a song about that. Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a wine vat for it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. The theme of God's people being a vineyard is a refrain that is woven throughout much of the Old Testament. It appears in the Psalms, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, and Hosea. And this theme continues on into the New Testament. It is a theme that is finally and fully resolved in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and realized in and through His church. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ builds upon this theme in this parable, and by the way, a parable is a story that teaches a lesson. When the Lord builds on this theme in this parable, its shape and its substance would have been immediately familiar to Jesus' audience. And so here's the big idea this morning. That those who are in Christ must remember God's patience and justice with Israel. And so tell the nations of the world of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. 
That those who are in Christ should remember the storyline arc of the Bible. That the patience and justice of God toward Israel. And then we should tell the nations of the world of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. I trust that you'll see that as we work our way back through this passage. Again, there are three parts of this parable, and then I'll leave some application for the end. So we'll look first at the setting of the parable, and then second, we'll look at the scandal of the parable, and then third, we'll look at the significance of the parable. So the setting of the parable, the scandal of the parable, and the significance of the parable. So let's start with the setting in verse 9. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable, story that teaches a lesson. And the parable goes like this. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into a far country for a long while. A man planting a vineyard and letting it out to tenants would have been a fairly common thing in Jesus' day. I mean, this was a largely agrarian society, and a man with a large vineyard could not very well have kept the whole thing by himself. And so he would take his vineyard and chop it up into little bits, and he would let out those little bits to farmers who would uh, keep the vineyard and keep a portion of the produce of the vineyard for themselves, and then give the vast majority, of course, to the owner of the vineyard. It was a land lease sort of thing. Now, when Jesus told this parable to these people, remember, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. He's teaching and preaching the gospel. It's Tuesday of Holy Week. If you've been with us in the series of Luke, you've seen the last few weeks, Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem on Sunday morning, riding on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy. On Monday, he clears out the temple, and here he is on Tuesday telling and teaching the people about the Lord. And here he tells a story about a vineyard. And as I said earlier, this is a common refrain throughout the Bible. These themes and these symbols would have been clear to everyone. They would have been familiar with Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, which says that Yahweh brought a vine out of Egypt and drove out the nations and planted it. So it's rather obvious to them, and should be rather obvious to us, who the owner of the vineyard is. This is, of course, God in Jesus' story. The vineyard, then, of course, is the people of God. And this this metaphor of God's people, Israel, being a vineyard was a rather, it became like a natural symbol for the nation. First century Historian Josephus tells us that at the entrance of the temple, there were these carvings of a golden vine over the doors with these huge branches coming down the sides. And so a vineyard became a symbol for the nation of Israel, sort of like the way that the bald eagle is a symbol for the nation of America. A maple leaf is a symbol for Canada. Socks and sandals are a symbol for Steelers fans. It's the same kind of thing. So God is the owner, Israel is the vineyard, but the question is then, who are the tenants? That's not hard to determine either, because after all, who did Yahweh put in charge of caring for Israel? Who is responsible to cultivate the faithfulness and fruitfulness of God's people? 
Well, the religious leaders, the priesthood, the scribes, the Pharisees and Sadducees. God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, planted them in the Holy Land like a vineyard, and he appointed men to care for her, to lead her, to produce the fruit that he created them to produce. And in the parable, Jesus says there's time for the owner of the vineyard to collect, to collect what is due. And so he sends servants to the tenants. Let's pick up reading verse 10. This is the scandal of the parable. Verse 10 to 12. When the time came, Jesus, or the owner, sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. So the owner of the vineyard sends some servants to collect some of the fruit, and the tenants refuse to give the servant fruit. They beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. No fruit. And so the owner sends another one, and they do the same thing to him. Treat him shamefully, beat him up, send him away empty-handed. And then the owner hires a third servant and sends a, ser- sends a third servant to these tenants. Now, the point here is it's meant to be ridiculous. After the first servant is treated so poorly, why would the owner send another? Should have sent the police. But he gave his tenants another chance. And after the second servant comes back, black-eyed and clothes torn and beard-shaven and empty-handed, it would have been preposterous for the owner to have sent a third servant, right? But that's the point. Now, I don't suspect anyone here is a tenant farmer. And I thought about this this week, trying to find a modern equivalent to what this might look like or might be in our day. A modern equivalent for the scandal of this owner's patience. And the closest example I could think of would be that of like financial investments. When you have money, you, you may take some of that money and you may give it to a financial advisor financial investor. And it's that investor's job to protect that money, to invest that money, to cultivate that money so that it produces more money. And the investor takes a commission off of what he or she earns for you. Now imagine a rich guy sends his executive assistant to the financial advisor to make a withdrawal. And the investor beats up the assistant and sends him back empty-handed. What do you think that that rich guy would do? Well, he might send another servant to his investor, but it would be like Luca Brazzi. <laughs> The hitman from The Godfather. That's who he would be sending. Investors about to sleep with the fishes. But in Jesus' parable, the owner keeps sending servants. Why? Because our Lord is explaining the scandalous patience of God with his people. And the servants in the parable 
represent the prophets of God, which he sent repeatedly to Israel. The prophets came to collect fruit, and they were usually rejected by Israel's leaders. Do you remember in Acts chapter 7 when the very first Christian martyr Stephen is testifying before the Jewish council? He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Because, of course, every prophet was rejected and persecuted. The leaders of Israel persecuted the prophet Samuel, and then God sent Amos and they rejected him. And then God sent Hosea, and they rejected him. And God sent Isaiah, and they rejected. Elijah was chased off, hated, had to run for his life. Jeremiah, they put in stocks, buried him in a pit to die. Zechariah was stoned to death. And the last prophet in the Bible, John the baptizer, was also rejected by Israel's leaders. But again, God keeps sending more and more to his people, more messengers to warn them, more messengers to plead with them. All of this communicating that the mercy of God is amazing, if not downright scandalous. I mean, after all, this is God we're talking about, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, who chose this people from nothing, who did nothing to deserve his choice, and he called them his own people and commissioned them for a purpose. He blessed them, he protected them, he provided for them, he gave them a land to live on, a temple to worship in, a mission to complete. He shaped them like a a potter shapes clay, and this lump of dirt dares to defy him, dares to tell him, no, my body, my choice, this is my life, my dreams, my rules, my glory, my comfort, my safety. And this incredible God, scandalous in his mercy, keeps pursuing them. He's holding together the very molecules of the hands which pushes away. And he keeps giving them chance after chance after chance. God is patient. God is patient. And now we come to the most scandalous part of the Lord's parable in verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And so here we come to the main point of the whole parable. The owner sent his beloved son. Now it is quite clear to any Bible student who is meant by the beloved son. At the baptism of the Lord Jesus, 
Do you remember what the voice from heaven said? This is my beloved son. Same exact phrase. My beloved son. John 3.16 For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only son. The owner of the parable thinks to himself, if these tenants won't respect my servants, most certainly they'll respect my son. After all, he's my son. He's my authority. But they don't. They think to themselves, this is the heir. The old man must have kicked the bucket. He's dead. So now if we kill him, we can take the vineyard and we'll own it ourselves. So that in our modern version of this parable, this would be as if this rich man sends his only son to his financial investor and the investor kills the kid and takes all the money for himself. And that's where the parable ends. The tenants throw the, the son out of the vineyard and kill him. Now this, this parable that the Lord is, is telling is a, it's an allegory, it's a prophetic allegory. Jesus is foretelling what will happen to him in just a few days. After all, remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's Tuesday. And in just a few days, he'll be arrested and he'll be taken out of the city and he'll be killed on a cross. And so Jesus turns to the people to whom he's speaking and he drives home the point. Let's pick up reading in the second half of verse 15. For now we come to the significance, the significance of this parable. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And Jesus answers his own rhetorical question. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they, the crowd, heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What should the owner do to those wicked tenants? There's an obvious answer. I mean, if they killed his son, he should come and destroy this tenants and give the vineyard to others. I mean, how many chances had the tenants been given? They had proved that they were unfaithful to the owner time and again. The tenants had no respect for the owner of the vineyard. They had no respect for the son. They presumed upon his patience. It had been, he had been gone for so long and their hearts had become so proud. And the point is, God as the owner of the vineyard, his people as the vineyard, and the leaders as the tenants, the point is that God is patient and God is just. God is patient and God is just. The Apostle Paul warned his readers in Rome, saying, do you presume 
on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You see, the reason why God would send messenger after messenger to his people was to draw them to himself, that they would see their sin and they would turn from their sin and they would turn to him for mercy. But Israel and her leaders did not. They presumed upon the Lord in the way that these tenants presumed upon the owner of the vineyard. And their presumption led to their destruction. Let no one here today presume upon the kindness and forbearance and patience of the Lord. Friend, if you're living your life your way, telling yourself that someday I'll get serious about God. Someday I'll get serious about what I believe. Someday I'll begin following what God tells me. But for now, I'm just going to do my own thing. Live my own way. Have my fun. Friend, I want you to see that you're no different than those tenants in Jesus' story. God has sent his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to you today in the passage of the Bible in the same way that the owner of the vineyard sent his beloved son to those wicked tenants. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Receive the free gift of His mercy and salvation. Do that before you leave this place today. Tell someone you'd like to become a Christian. We'll tell you more about this incredible patience of God. We would love to begin meeting with you and telling you more about what is, what, what is meant by this fruitfulness. What is the fruit that God expects from my life? If I'm like a part of his vineyard, what does God want from me? We'd love to begin meeting with you and telling you more about that. Jesus' audience clearly understood the meaning of his story, and they didn't like it. Surely not, they said. No way. Take the leadership of Israel away from the priesthood and give it to others? Surely not. But remember, this is a prophetic allegory. And so the Lord explains what he's been doing. This is God's plan all along. That appears in verse 17. He looks directly at them and asks them, haven't you been reading Psalm 118? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So Luke says that Jesus looks directly at... He's not playing games. This is serious. And he quotes from an old psalm. Psalm 118. It happens to be the same passage that the people applied to Jesus when they called him king upon his entrance into the city of Jerusalem on the back of the colt of a donkey. That psalm 
which these people would have recited every year during the Passover, foretold that this is exactly what would happen to the Messiah of God. Psalm 118 told the same story that Jesus told in his parable. That Messiah would be rejected by men and accepted by God. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I was taught in the sixth grade English to not mix metaphors, but Jesus does it because Jesus is God. He doesn't care what sixth grade English teachers say. Besides, it's a play on words. Jesus is speaking Aramaic probably, and the words for stone and son sounded very similar. So the rejected son is the same as the rejected stone. The tenants who rejected the son are those builders who rejected the stone. The stone was rejected. It became the cornerstone. Now back in those days, large buildings, the walls were made of these huge stones. They'd be cut at the quarry, they'd be transported to the construction site, and they'd be slid into place. The cornerstone was the most important stone. Now, the word essentially means the head of the corner. It can refer to the large stone that's placed in the principal corner of the building after which all the other stones are shaped. It could also refer to the capstone of an arch. It's the stone at the top that keeps the whole thing together. The stone that was rejected is Jesus himself. And the religious leaders are like the builders. They've rejected him. But through his rejection, his death and resurrection, he becomes the cornerstone, the headstone, the stone after which all the other stones are shaped, the stone that holds everything together. In addition, the stone that becomes the agent of God's judgment. And that's what he says in verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone, the cornerstone, Christ, will be broken to pieces. And when the cornerstone, Christ, falls on anyone, it will crush him. The Jewish rabbis had a saying in those days. If a stone falls on a pot, it will smash the pot. If a pot falls on a stone, it will smash the pot. The point is, the collision causes the destruction of the weaker of the two things which collide. And Christ is the cornerstone who cannot be broken. And so when a collision with him happens, everything else crashes. Those who reject Jesus will be crushed. And this is what happens to the religious leaders. Jesus Christ himself is the dividing point of all humanity. There are those who trust in the Lord who will be saved. And there are those who reject the Lord, who trust in themselves, who will be crushed. There are only those two types of people. 
Jesus' parable summarizes the whole storyline of the Bible. That God had chosen a people for himself. They were his people. They were to tell the nations of the world of his majesty and mercy and glory. In Exodus chapter 19, Yahweh calls his people a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. They were his people. They belonged to him. And they were to call the nations of the world to him to receive mercy for their sins and to be grafted into the vineyard that is the people of God. Israel is that vineyard. But she produced wild grapes. And God sent his servants, the prophets, to them. And the leaders rejected the prophets rejecting even the Son of God himself. And in his ministry, Jesus did what Israel failed to do. He produced the fruit that Israel failed to produce. Jesus revealed the glory and mercy and grace of God perfectly. And so Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true vine. Jesus produced the true fruit which God called his people to produce. And now, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He sent his Holy Spirit and he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility such that the new covenant people of God consist both of Jew and non-Jew. Jews trusting in Jesus, the natural branches in the vineyard, and the non-Jews, those Gentiles who've been grafted in. Such that in the new covenant, there is one people of God from every tribe, tongue, people, language, nation. Such that all of the promises which God had given to his people Israel are realized in Jesus Christ. And through their union to Christ, this new covenant people of God, the church, Enjoy the covenant blessings that God had promised to his people. All the blessings of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Through their union to Christ, they produce the fruit that God had created his people to produce. As they go into all the world and tell the nations of his glory. Some years later, after the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, the Apostle Peter likened Christians to living stones built upon the cornerstone that is God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he told them, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Does that sound familiar? It's the same language that Yahweh spoke to his covenant people Israel in Exodus 19. 
So having been united to Christ by faith, the church is the new covenant people of God, consisting of both Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, all one in Christ Jesus the Lord. And here's why that matters. Three points of application as we draw this to a close. Here's why this understanding, this parable matters. First, God is all about God, and he told a story all about himself. And Christian, you get to be a part of that unfolding storyline arc that God is telling about the glory of his grace in saving his people through judgment. This is the storyline arc of the Bible. It is the storyline arc of your life. That you have been chosen by God to be a royal priesthood, a citizen of his holy nation, God's own possession. And that you get to give your whole life to telling the nations of the world who have never heard about the glory of God's grace and mercy. You get to proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. You get to take the message of His gospel to where He is not known. You get to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. God is telling His story of His beloved Son, which He has made you a part of. And He's given you lines in His play. And so speak them. Share them with others. For the fruit of this vineyard is a heart transformed by God's grace, giving glory to God's Son. It is a life so deeply satisfied in Christ that it cannot be drawn away by the lesser joys offered by sin. It is the overflow of your delight in Jesus Christ, telling all who will hear that Jesus is better. So that's first. Second, and this is drawing from the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 11. God gave a mission to his people Israel, which she failed to complete. And some of the natural branches were cut off because of their unbelief. Wild branches, the Gentiles, were grafted in. And this was part of God's plan all along. And like Paul... We must listen and say, let us, let us, the wild branches, let us not become arrogant and boast against the natural branches. Rather, let us fear. Because if God did not spare the natural branches for their unbelief, neither will he spare the wild branches. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen and kindness towards those who believe. And so let God's kindness towards us, the wild branches, drive us to our knees in prayer for the natural branches, for ethnic Israel, and pray that God would open their eyes to the glory of their Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. For there is a remnant chosen by grace, 
And let us pray that God would rise them up. And that brings us to the final point of application. Praise the Lord for His mercy. And praise the Lord for His justice. Praise the Lord for His beloved Son. And rejoice in Him where the infinite mercy and infinite justice meet. And let us not exalt Him for His mercy and then chastise Him for His justice. For our Lord is in heaven and He does as He pleases. This is His story and He tells it how He likes. And should the Lord be pleased to grant to you a portion of this vineyard, be faithful in what He gives to you, whether it is small or big. Do not despise the day of small things. Be faithful in little. And when you see those who have more, rejoice that God has given them more. And if the Lord is pleased to give you more, be faithful in more. But do not fall into the trap of thinking that it's because you have deserved better than others. For your part in this vineyard is all of grace. Produce the fruit of the vineyard that has been entrusted to you when he comes. And so to that end, let us pray that the Lord would help us. Father in heaven, we praise you for your son giving us this parable. We thank you for sending Jesus to tell us all about you, to reveal your mercy and your justice. Forgive us, O Lord, for thinking more of ourselves than we ought. Forgive us for being like those wicked servants, those wicked tenants, and treating your grace like it was some kind of license to do whatever we want. Forgive us for presuming upon your kindness and your forbearance. Teach us to fear you and to accept what is from your hand and to live quiet and peaceful lives, humble and thankful. Let us take up the privilege to proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. Amen. And now if you would please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. For those here who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, we go to God's word in search of an assurance that he has pardoned us by his glorious grace. We find one such pardon in the book of Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus.